Hello, my name is Ben Kitchings. Thank you very much for listening to the History Voyager, a podcast about history. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. People have said to me over and over again that, you know, the 1918 flu didn't really change anything in society. And that's, you know, not really the case at all. Really, what is the case is that we're living in that society and that we don't actually see the changes because, frankly, because we're living in them. And I thought one of the things I would do today is talk about that in a very, very serious way because it's becoming apparent to me that the intersection of the current disease as well as the 1918 flu, there's a lot of commonalities. And one of the biggest commonalities, I honestly really think, is the fact that society's going to change, but also the new people, the people that are too young to know any better, essentially, they're not going to notice the changes at all because they're going to live in them. The 1918 flu was essentially happened at essentially this time where there wasn't really a centralized medical, you know, apparatus the way we think of them today. One of the main reasons that, you know, all of the data, all of the historical data from the 1918 flu comes from militaries is because that was essentially the centralized medical apparatus of the day. There's a very interesting what historians call counterfactual thought process that essentially says if the 1918 flu had not occurred during a global war, it's entirely possible that we might not, you know, we might really not have any idea that it occurred. One of the more bizarre um, aspects that historians who study this thing seriously encounter literally every single time they try to do anything about it or try to study it or talk about it in any serious, real way is that the order of the orders of magnitude of the deaths is just so different. It's utterly amazing to me the the difference in the numbers, you know, and, and some of that realistically is because you know at the time much like now at the time people just didn't want to record the the death from the flu because remember the received wisdom was that only sick people died of the flu or the received wisdom was also that nobody died of the flu which so the fact that anybody could die of the flu was was very much a, a new thing. And, of course, they thought, well, only sick people can die of this. So what are the numbers of death of the flu? Well, the lowest number that I've ever seen is actually put forth by Alfred Crosby, who's made a, essentially a career out of studying the flu. And he says it's about 20 million people or 22 million people which he calls a responsible number. What is a responsible number? What, what does he mean by that? I'm assuming what he means is 
people that the medical profession at the time said this person died of the Spanish flu or this person at the time died of a disease which the Spanish flu could have been. All right. Now, if you remember, I said half a billion people died of the Spanish flu. That number comes from a lot of anecdotal evidence because there were a lot of people who said so-and-so died of the flu. And, you know, but there wasn't really what we would call a, uh, a properly trained physician at the time to actually do a cause of death. That's why you hear a lot of people. I actually have a family member who says that my ancestor probably died of the flu. So you have a lot of that. There's a whole lot of that. So it's kind of like this, this ghost or invisible assassin, if you will, crank, clanking around in people's closets and their families and in their communities. It's really interesting. Uh, to the level to which um, this had gone on literally in almost every family on earth to some degree or other. A lot of the deaths are also, uh, you know, interpolated based on a very interesting uh, phenomenon which sounds uh, very, very sort of esoteric and strange until you really start to think about it. Let me, let me uh, give you a more modern example of what I mean. Um, a much more modern example, and maybe this will help you understand what I'm trying to say. So, I knew a guy when I was in college. Um, he was an older fella. He, uh, he'd gone to my college under a, under a very interesting catalog whereby he could essentially just keep going to college if he wanted to he didn't have to apply to a program he could just walk in through the door and they had they essentially had to accept him anyway he had a fascinating story um roundabout he said he was very adamant about this roundabout 1978 he had a a friend of his and they were you know drinking in a bar and the friend, you know, so-and-so died, right, in my apartment. The guy just died. He was dead. And then they would go out again a couple weeks later, a couple whatever later, and he would say, another friend of mine died. Another friend of mine passed away in the apartment, you know. And eventually what ended up happening was that this guy, this friend of this guy I knew, started to realize that all of these people in his apartment were dropping dead. And he just was like, oh, my God. And so he, he, he got out of there as fast as he could because he didn't know what was happening. Okay? He had no idea what was happening. And that was 1978. Now, cut to... I met this guy in the 2010s. Cut to 2010-ish, say, this older fella said, you know, 
looking back at it as kind of more of an adult, I realized now that had to be AIDS. That literally had to be AIDS. That's that's what I mean, is that there was another category of death where somebody would essentially die of maybe a cardiac involvement or, you know, their essentially their veins would, would burst open or, or whatever. And, you know, there was a, there were constant stories of people bleeding from the nose in one afternoon and, and literally starting the morning fine. And then just literally bleeding from the nose. And then at the time that was reported as a Spanish flu death. Now, a modern virologist and a modern, you know, health researcher looking at that, essentially, you sort of have to go on, I guess, the the honor system. But also, a lot of people just went missing, you know, and they, they were assumed dead. And that was, that was very interesting to, to think about. And then when I remembered my... Uh, my classmates story that's kind of kind of what i mean is like i guess if you're adjacent to a pandemic or to a to a, a broad sickness people are going to assume that the, that that person was a casualty of that sickness knowledge in 1918 was much more localized of course than it is today it was also much more uh sort of a thing where somebody might um, you know, the doctor you might meet might be vastly uh, inferior in education to another doctor. So that's one aspect. It's, it's like maybe perhaps people were being wrongly interpolated into the Spanish flu. And it's also, I think, a little bit, I guess, professional skepticism. Like, you know, maybe some people are, are seeking to add numbers into the Spanish flu and other people are seeking to subtract numbers. One of the, the ways that the Spanish flu deaths are are tallied is essentially some tallies include if you die of a complication of the Spanish flu uh, decades later. And also, I think there's another thing. I think a lot of the Spanish flu deaths are... Uh, colloquially interpolated by much later people and what I mean by that is okay I've I've interviewed um, probably north of a hundred people for various projects and and media mediums and things like that and you know you don't really meet these people anymore because you know they're they're gone but you used to hear all the time I used to hear all the time about it was almost as though it was a phase of life where where somebody would recount to me their their life and they would say, you know, my father had a friend and that, that friend, you know, suddenly died or, or the neighbors just, just died suddenly. And what strikes me looking back at, at that because of this podcast is how often that happened, you know, so... In, in, in some ways, I really do think that the Spanish flu was a, a silent killer. 
of, of people. I also think that it's important to understand that, you know, when you talk about the deaths, but also the changes of the Span that the Spanish flu did bring, the Spanish flu, in a lot of ways, woke the world up to uh, the the fact that you need to have public health systems. Uh, because remember, they, they didn't have that. They, they absolutely didn't have public health systems. There's The reason that we have all of the data we have is because of, you know, the, the army. The current thinking about the Spanish flu is that there was essentially two waves of it. There was a wave in 1918 that occurred in sort of the spring uh, and then the summer and then the 1919 uh, variety of the Spanish flu which occurred in the fall and then winter and then into the, you know, into the other seasons. What's interesting about that is that the graphs are different the later graph killed much younger people. Now, what I think is fascinating is the reason the powers that be started caring essentially was because what was going on was the workforce was dying. The, the workforce in the different factories were, were going. But also, I mean, even to look at, you know, the diaries and accounts of of different townspeople all over the country, they can they start talking about things happening in 1917 or 1916. And some people, including me, think that the Spanish flu basically didn't really peter out into the, you know, until at least the 1920. But that's what's interesting is that the reason you know, the powers that be started to care was because they started to notice the their employees were were dying. Like the Ford factory, the Ford factories in Michigan and all across the Midwest were essentially uh, missing people. There was one factory in Michigan specifically that missed a, a thousand people and had to shut down. Right here is where I'm going to talk about something that most people in this country or in the world, really, most people that would have any shot at all of hearing this podcast would either not consider or would find very, very strange and, and very, very, you know, atypical of a modern society, a modern life. There is a, a truly huge percentage of the population, really all over the world, but let's just focus for a second on the U.S. of A., right, there's a, a truly huge percentage of the American population that would never really interface at all with any sort of authority that was charged with tallying who these people were. You know, the, the, the idea of, of gathering demographic data at all, period, paragraph, actually comes from the responsibility of the Spanish flu Partly because there was an entire, basically, generation or cohort or whatever you want to call it that 
basically for the rest of their working lives, well into what was then old age, were thinking, how many people actually died of this flu? We don't know. And one of the things that you, you look at is you look at the anecdotal evidence. And one of the striking things is the Spanish flu was almost entirely diagnosed when it was diagnosed at all by younger doctors. Loring Milner stands out as the exception that proves the rule because Loring Milner was an older fella, you know, and but a lot of the Spanish flu was actually diagnosed by younger doctors who were new to the job. Now, there's a couple of things, there's a couple of ways you can look at that. You can say, well, those newer doctors were more recently trained and so they were they were more, you know, versed in the diagnostics of the day and the methodologies of the day. And, you know, that there's a lot to be said for that. But there's another thought where it's like, is it possible that maybe the younger folks, the younger doctors might have um, wanted to interpolate this into a disease? And I, I don't mean that in terms of like they made it up because they clearly didn't. But there's with anything, there's the, there's a desire to, you know, to label it. And if you're not of a consciousness to, to label something, you know, it doesn't get labeled. I mean, I, I know that's, that sounds very basic, but things can happen all the time and it's not really labeled. And here is another thing that we're living with today with the Spanish flu pandemic, you know, in the post-Spanish flu pandemic world. Right up until the young people started dying of this flu, right up until the medical professionals were interpolating the young people uh, into the flu deaths, you know, it was hitting older people in pretty big numbers. And the media of the day, right across the world, essentially uh, just poo-pooed it entirely. They essentially dismissed it out of hand. And then forever after, you know, the media would essentially, it's like they learned their lesson. And so they've been paying penance for it ever since. So in a way, you can totally say that the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 totally um, created the media's role as, as public health sort of alarm bearer, like the town crier for, for public health emergencies. And remember that the Spanish flu sort of snuck up on people you know, colloquially speaking, it's kind of snuck up on, like you would have maybe a couple of deaths in a town and then it would just sort of go gangbusters, if you will. And I, I really believe that the various media editors of the various media outlets across the globe kind of sort of have been paying penance for that ever since. And I would imagine some of them that lived beyond that felt very very guilty and and essentially instilled upon their successors that you really have to take your your role as as town crier very very seriously there are accounts from all over the country of essentially crops rotting in the fields because field workers couldn't get them because all of the able-bodied men 
in the community were either at war or they were sick from from the flu or from what we today call the flu. It wasn't until the, the flu started to impact the crop production and also the production of automobiles and other things that the powers that be, and not the government, but the powers that be in corporate America started to pay attention to this disease. That's what's so interesting to me, is that when we think about this disease, we want to think about it as the the government rode to the rescue, or some degree or other. But no, actually, the government didn't ride to the rescue. The reason it was noticed at all was because, you know, the the commercial aspects of the country were starting to be severely impacted by the flu. And so that's arguably the entire reason we know about the Spanish flu at all is because it was impacting production. One of the changes that came out of this disease, and indeed one of the reasons why the younger doctors might have been more receptive to interpolating it as a disease at all, was the observation that the disease could pass from ethnic group to ethnic group. Because remember that before that, people thought that whatever undesirable group of people that you didn't like was the undesirable people that could get whatever disease was going around at the time. There was a doctor in San Quentin who noticed that the Spanish flu, or what we today call the Spanish flu, would pass between African-American and Latino and white patient, irrespective of their ethnicity. And this was essentially a revelation at the time. It was a, it was a major um, revelation that there was no real difference between you know, what we today think of as the races of humans It was commonly held by what you might call polite society that the different races were susceptible to different diseases. And this was a widely held belief. Remember, if you might remember the podcast I did about Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson's belief about the races were not anywhere near atypical, which is to say that the British intelligence knew about the sickness going through the the Germans but they thought that the Germans would be the only ones to get it, and they thought that the the British people um, basically could not get the German uh, diseases. And, of course, you know, that's really interesting from a historical standpoint because genetically, you know, a lot of what we today think of as British people came essentially from Germany, but, you know, they didn't know that at the time, except maybe in legends and myths, and who knows how many people actually might have believed that. By May of 1918, 10% of the British Navy had come down with the Spanish flu. Now, this is in the middle of a war. This was when the Navy started to sit up and notice And that's what's so interesting is, again, the lack of unity, the lack of a cohesive response. It was always either the army, the navy, and the factories. There was almost never a cohesive response. What you see again and again, over and over and over, are 
doctors will always come into a place, be it a prison or a camp or whatever, and they'll notice pneumonia-like symptoms, and then they'll write it, writing to their colleagues, their colleagues will talk about, we have the same kind of thing going on here. And then there's always a ping-ponging of letters, and through the course of this ping-ponging of letters, somebody will bring up, well, there's this thing called the Spanish flu. And then it's almost like you can see it, like a Hollywood trope, like a, like a movie, right? The, the young doctor, the young intrepid doctor in San Quentin, or in some factory town somewhere, will start to realize, oh, okay, this is the Spanish flu. All right, cool. But as a historian, as a modern, you know, person interested in the history telling of this, of this thing, the thing that I keep bumping into is you're only looking at people who interfaced either with prisons or... The, the military in some form or fashion, you're not thinking about the, the vast and varied aspects of civilian life at all. And this juxtaposes with the fact that, you know, I would interview all these people and they would talk about, well, my father had a friend who, who died of pneumonia or, you know, so-and-so, the neighbors, blah, blah, blah. And you think about that, and you think, we don't really have, at least, you know, a complete picture of the official deaths of the flu. Now, why does that matter? Why does the official deaths of the flu matter? Well, for one thing, I think it erases the trauma of somebody who died of the flu, potentially, who wasn't interpolated into it, because they didn't, you know, they didn't interface with the military or whatever, you know. I mean, I think back about my grandmother, who was a very smart woman, who honestly thought that the only people who could have gotten the Spanish flu were the soldiers. And then I always, you know, I think back about that, um, that other man, my friend from college, who had a neighbor in 1978 it's funny that i remember all these years later that it happened in 1978 and the only reason i remember that is because of an argument that he got into with somebody about it couldn't have been 1978 because aids wasn't around then but i think it's important to understand that medical professionals even today are not omniscient and there's always a force behind it there's always kind of this political or societal element behind interpolating something into a disease that there's always a motive and that's a thought I wanted to leave with you guys on this episode of my podcast uh, thank you very much I'm gonna pick this up again um, and delve into it a little more some more but uh Thank you, and have a good day. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Don't forget to subscribe to this in your various podcast catches. Uh, don't forget also that I can be found on Twitter at, at Ben's Charlie. I can also be found on Instagram at Ben Kitchings Podcaster. Um, you know, that's fun, too. 
So, you know, and thank you very much for getting the word out. And um, the more the merrier, so to say. Anyway, have fun. <laughs>